Father, we just ask that as we look at your word in the next 20 minutes or half an hour or so, we just pray that you would speak to us the words that you want us to hear and, Father, that you would give us the strength to be able to respond to those words. Amen. I'd like to do two things um, this morning um, as we look at these verses, particularly verses 15 through to 17, in terms of Peter's restoration and his reinstatement. Um, The second thing I'd like to do is fairly orthodox and straightforward, um, is to look through those three or four verses in quite a lot of detail, because it's quite possible that Jesus uses some very subtle language with Peter to reinstall him, to restore him and reinstate him. And very much Peter's restoration is very much our restoration. Peter's reinstatement can be our reinstatement. And that's true for us this morning if we've been Christians for a long time and we're going on with God. It's true for us if we're Christians, we're backslidden and we know that we've put God on the back burner, as it were. And we know that that's a dangerous place for God to be in our lives. Peter's restoration, his reinstatement can be our restoration and reinstatement. But equally, if we're not Christians here this morning and we're just thinking about the things of God, we're thinking about the claims of Christ in our life, Peter's attitude and the way that he comes to Christ in this particular passage, again, his reinstatement, his restoration, can be our reinstatement and restoration. So that's the second thing I want to do, and it's a fairly straightforward orthodox thing. The first thing I want to do is a bit more dangerous Um, a little bit more edgy, Um, something that I shouldn't really do, Um, something that may get me thrown out of the preacher's guild if it comes to light. And if that does happen, I hope some of you might support me, Um, be character witnesses or something like that. Um, They can be quite difficult affairs if you've ever been in front of preacher's guild. Um, But the thing that I'd like to do first of all that I shouldn't really do, is to speculate. I just want to speculate for maybe three to four minutes. And it's not something that one should really do from the pulpit. From the pulpit, one should bring forward just the truth of the message and how it applies to us. But it may be helpful just for us to speculate for three or four minutes, because it may help us as we then approach these verses um, in John. And what I want to speculate about is about God's characteristics. To think about Jesus' characteristics and God's characteristics. Because when we think about God's characteristics and Jesus' characteristics, I think some of the words that we might use to describe Jesus or describe God are words like love and justice, grace, mercy, free will, intelligence, creativity, compassion, anger, holiness, Purity, they would all be words that we, I think, would associate with the person of Jesus and therefore with God. But in a sense, I think that can leave us with a very serious and a very intense vision of Jesus and of God. And the question I want to ask, the speculation I want to ask is, do you think God and Jesus has a sense of humour? Do you think we have a God of laughter, a Jesus of laughter? Because that doesn't come out necessarily very strongly when we read um, the Bible in totality. Because the thing I was most struck with, if you've ever seen um, Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ, 
the thing that I was most struck with probably in the whole of the film was when they had a little flashback to Jesus' life. And Jesus was laughing and joking with his mother and with his friends. And that's the first time I've ever seen Jesus portrayed um, laughing, joking, and having a kind of lightness to him that sometimes we may miss. And I do think that there's enough in the Gospels and in the Bible to maybe suggest or at least speculate that Jesus and God had a very good sense of humour. And I think it's a sense of humour that is based primarily on irony. Because irony is a truth-revealing humour. It's the kind of humour that exposes our facades, our pretensions, and gets to the root of the truth of who we are. And I think we've got enough to speculate that that's what God and Jesus' sense of humour might be. And it's a bit like, I don't know if you're familiar with Michael McIntyre, he's quite, um, quite an up-and-coming comedian at the moment. Um, and generally speaking, Michael McIntyre is not rude in his humour. Generally speaking, he's not belittling of others in his humour. Generally speaking, he's not crude and doesn't swear a lot. But he's very funny because he reveals the truth about ourselves and makes us laugh at it. And we learn something. And I just want to speculate that possibly, possibly Jesus, when he's speaking to Peter in this passage, is using a little bit of gentle irony. Possibly, we might even speculate that there's a tiny beginnings of a smile on the corners of his mouth as he speaks to Peter. Obviously, Peter hasn't seen this if Jesus is using irony, as we'll see at the end. That's the speculation. If that's helpful, then that's great. If it's not helpful, then just discard it. Um, But equally, I still hope you'll be a character witness, should I need you. So let's come to these three verses or so, 15 through to 17. And before we look at these in a bit of detail, as I say, it's maybe some of the subtle language that Jesus used here. Let's just think about Peter for a moment, where Peter has come from and come to at this point in time. If we think about Peter and who he was, he was very much the leader of this group of disciples. He was the kind of alpha male of the group. He was the kind of charismatic one who was always first in line. If Jesus was walking on water, he was going to be first to do that. He seemed to be the person who was kind of surest of his abilities. He was kind of Mr. Strong. He seemed to be possibly the most status-driven among a group of fairly status-driven bunch of people. He seemed to be very much view Jesus as the warrior king. If you remember when um, Jesus said, who do other people say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus went on straight afterwards to say, that's true, and I'm going to die and be resurrected. And Peter wanted none of that. He actually told Jesus off at that point. He had an idea that Jesus was going to be this warrior king that was going to free Israel from the Romans. He seems to have problems with Jesus as a servant king. Remember, he was the one when Jesus was wanting to wash everybody's feet. He was the one that was, oh no, you're not washing my feet, Jesus. He didn't seem to want Jesus in that servant role. You remember, it was Peter as well that got tooled up in Gethsemane. He was the one that came with a sword and started laying into one of the people that wanted to arrest Jesus. Again, it seemed like he was resisting this idea that Jesus needed to die and be resurrected. He seemed to have this idea still that Jesus was going to be the warrior king. And he certainly seemed to suggest, at least, that he was probably a tiny bit a cut above the other disciples. 
He was the person, if you remember, who said, Jesus, if all these people fall away from you, all these disciples may betray you and deny you, but I'm different. I'm the one who's going to stick by you through thick and thin. These others won't. And so what has happened to Peter through Jesus' death and resurrection that he now stands before Jesus? And two things have happened, I think. He's denied Jesus. He's done exactly the thing that he said he wouldn't do. And I think there's two things that have occurred. I think the ideas and the perceptions about himself have been shattered. He's absolutely changed in terms of who he sees himself to be. But through Jesus actually dying and being raised from the dead, his ideas about Jesus seem to be shattered as well. He's gone from hero to zero. But through that, through that shattering of his ideas about himself and shattering of those ideas about Jesus, he is now aware about the truth of his own weakness. He can come to Jesus in weakness and humility. And that's the only attitude, that's precisely the attitude and the only attitude that God can use in us. It's the only way that we can really respond to the things of God, is to come before him in that same attitude. And he's also coming to Jesus now with the idea, the truth, about Jesus' kingdom. That it's a kingdom that's much more subtle than just overthrowing earthly powers. It's a much more subtle kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so here's Peter confronted with Jesus. And this is Jesus' public reinstatement. And as I say, I think there's a possibility that Jesus uses some fairly subtle use of language to gently, publicly reinstate Peter. So first of all, let's look at verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. The first thing to be struck by is that he uses Peter's old name, Simon, son of John. It's no longer Peter the rock, this person that is suggestive of being a leader um, in terms of the disciples. It's back to his old human pre-Jesus name. And again, I think there's a gentle reminder there for Peter straight away. Peter, Simon, son of John, you're a normal, flawed human being. You have difficulties, you have problems, you have failings, just like every other person. And there's that intonation in just using that old name of Peter, Simon, son of John. And then Jesus says, do you truly love me more than these? And it's almost like this is the opening gambit of a cascading set of questions. He's basically saying, first of all, you remember Simon, son of John, that you said that you were cut above these other disciples in terms of your love. He's saying, do you still love me more than these? But he's also saying something else, because Jesus, when he uses the word love here, in John's Gospel, it's agape love. Agape love is divine love, the love of God, that sacrificial love, the highest order of love that is absolutely possible. And it's interesting that when Peter replies, he doesn't use the word agape when he says, you know that I love you. He uses the word philios, which is a more human kind of love, like brotherly affection. 
So it's almost like here Jesus is saying to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you have divine love for me more than all these other disciples? And Peter is now in a position where he can't even say he has divine love. And he certainly is not saying anymore that he loves Jesus more than anybody else. All he can say is, I think I have some brotherly affection for you. I have some brotherly affection for you. I think that's all I can say. And then Jesus says, basically says, feed my lambs. He says, that's okay. That's absolutely great, Peter. That's precisely where I want you to be, because that's real. That's absolutely real, and that's precisely the humble attitude that I can work with. And what I want from you, Peter, is you to be a leader, a leader, a servant leader, somebody that cares for my people, that leads by a caring servanthood, not a leader of power. So that's the first gambit from Jesus. Then he comes to him again. Again, Jesus said, this is verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And again, he's using agape when he says, love me there. So he's saying, Simon, son of John, do you have divine love for me? And he's gone down a notch. He's no longer asking Peter whether he's comparing himself with anybody else. He's just saying, do you have divine love for me? And again, Peter replies just with Phileas. He basically says, Lord, I have brotherly affection for you. Again, he's not able to say he has divine love. Brotherly affection. And again, Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Reinforcing, I want you to be a leader by servant, caring attitude. Looking after my people. Leading in that way. And then finally, in, the, in verse 17, the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, the word that um, John gives us here is that Jesus used the word philios. So Jesus has gone down the final notch and said, okay, Simon, son of John, do you have brotherly affection for me? And it looks like almost Peter, A, is hurt, but he almost gets to the point of saying, well, I'm not really sure of that even. But you know everything, Jesus. You know everything. And I'm pretty sure that I have some affection for you. He's absolutely humble in the sight of Jesus here, the resurrected Jesus. He's absolutely humble. And he's absolutely aware of his own weakness. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. A third time, he emphasises the servant nature of Peter's leadership. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he comes to him three times. The three times that Peter denied Jesus, the three times that he publicly reinstates him through these questions. And what Jesus is doing here, quite probably, is that he's showing Peter that this is absolute, complete restoration. It's absolutely 100%. For every time that he's denied him, there's the question and the answer. And that's the nature of God's restoration to us. When we come to him in humility and weakness, our restoration is absolutely complete. There is nothing else we need to do. There's nothing else we need to do. It's absolute. It's complete. And what Jesus is then starting to be able to do in Peter, he's able to start to transform him. This is the attitude of transformation, coming to God, coming to Jesus in humility 
and weakness. And as Peter's life unfolds, what we find is, is that his failure, his hurts, his disappointment, betrayal, pain, deliberate disobedience can be transformed into the best possible thing that they can be. The most beautiful outcome possible from these dodgy raw materials when laid at Jesus' feet can be absolutely beautiful. And it's the best possible outcome that can occur from these dodgy raw materials. And that's the same for us when we come to Jesus in humility and weakness. He can transform even the dodgy raw materials that we come with into the best possible outcome, the most beautiful outcome. And if he can do that with our dodgy materials, we can only imagine what he can do with our strengths and our talents and the things that we are good at. And so Peter's transformation can be our transformation. And this transformation of these limitations into something beautiful, I think, is rather poetically given to us by John Sargent in Strictly Come Dancing. And most of you, I hope, are familiar with John Sargent and his brief sojourn into the world of dancing. Um, Most people would probably say that John Sargent wasn't the best dancer in the world. Um, Words like cumbersome, clumsy, limited are the words that I think probably spring to most people's mind when you think of John Sargent and his dancing abilities. He struggles with dancing, as probably many of us do. Let's not belittle John too much. But John Sargent, he comes to Strictly Don't Come Dancing. He has very, very great limitations. He's flawed. He's a flawed dancer. But he comes with humility to an expert dancer. And he allows himself to go with that expert dancer, to be moulded by that expert dancer. And the outcome is a much, much more beautiful outcome than it could possibly have been if he had resisted this expert dancer. If he had gone his own way and decided that he was just going to do a nice dance on his own. Or if he had gone his own way and wanted to influence this expert dancer in his own ways. The dance would have been poor at best. And in a sense, that's a kind of, a little bit, a tiny bit of an image of what God can do with us when we come to him in humility and weakness and allow him to transform that. That he can do something much more beautiful than we could ever imagine on our own. And so the application here is that Peter's transformation can be our transformation. And Peter's transformation was a transformation by allowing himself to have his truths about himself changed. And we must be in that position if we want to be used by God. We must be in a position where we are continually open to having truths about us being changed and challenged. But equally, Peter's transformation was partly due to the transformation about his ideas about Jesus. They changed. God is much bigger than our ideas about him. We mustn't close off our minds to the things that God may want to reveal to us. We mustn't become fossilised in our ideas about God. We've got him sorted. We've got our theology sorted. We've got God packaged. And that's it. He's in a night 
and is in a nice, neat package. We must never get to that state. We must be continually open for God to keep on challenging and transforming our understanding and our experience of him. So whether we're Christians here tonight, this morning, we usually preach in the evening, um, if we're Christians here this morning, um, we need to be continually open to the possibility and the probability that God wants to show us a lot more about him that may change our current thoughts and our current ideas about him. If we're Christians here this morning who are backsliding, who have God on the back burner, Peter's transformation can very much be our transformation. We're in the same position in many respects as Peter was after his denial of Jesus. Our restoration can be complete if we come back to God in humility and weakness. And equally, and possibly even more importantly, if we're not Christians here this morning, this is the first step in terms of becoming a Christian, is coming to Jesus for the first time in humility and weakness and accepting Jesus as our Saviour and Lord. So I think Jesus' use of subtle language here can tell us something wherever we are with God this morning. And just before I conclude, I just want to just read you a quote that I think might help encapsulate some of these things. It may just leave us something just to think about and to challenge us. This is the quote, Grace and mercy are meeting the truth about ourselves and God clothed in Jesus. Judgment is meeting the truth about ourselves and God naked. Grace and mercy are meeting the truth about ourselves and God clothed in Jesus. Judgment is meeting the truth about ourselves and God naked. So in conclusion, we must allow God to reveal more of the truth about himself to us. We mustn't have him packaged up. He is bigger than our ideas about him. We must allow God continually to reveal truths about ourselves. We are only able to come to God with humility and weakness. But when we do that, he will restore us completely and he will start to transform us. And he'll transform our failures, our suffering, our pain, even our deliberate disobedience into something that is the most beautiful thing that it can possibly be. And if he'll do that with our limitations and our difficulties, we maybe can't even imagine what he'll do with our talents, our strengths and our gifts. Amen.